Hi there, and welcome to Good Distinctions. I'm your host today, Will Wright. So this is not a podcast that's refuting various theological points of the Society of St. Pius X. It's not an extensive refutation of the pernicious errors of Sedevacantism. What it is, what it aims to be, is the reiteration of what the Church herself is, who we are in relationship to her, and a warning to all of us to avoid the grave sin of schism. The Church of Jesus Christ is the Catholic Church. This Church is visible and clearly manifest. Jesus isn't trying to trick us. God the Father desires our salvation. The Holy Spirit guides and guards the church. Our Blessed Mother never ceases to intercede for us. And no matter how bleak things seem, staying in the bark of Peter is always the best option. So the first question is, what is the Church of Jesus Christ? Well, during the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, the Council Fathers took up the task of writing a dogmatic constitution, which is the highest magisterial level of a church document, on the church herself. And the mystery of the church is expounded in this constitution, Lumen Gentium, Light to the Nations, promulgated by Pope St. Paul VI in November 1964. The Council Fathers provided a clear and beautiful description of Holy Mother Church. Found in paragraph 8 of Lumen Gentium, in particular, is a nuanced and gorgeous explication of the church. Passages such as these must be read in continuity with everything that came before this moment in the church, or we run the risk of reading it outside the heart and mind of the church. One word especially provides difficulty for some readers of Lumen Gentium, and this is the word subsists. However, I hope to show in short order that this word is inspired and beautiful, and the paragraph begins like this. Christ, the one mediator, established and continually sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, as an entity with visible delineation through which he communicated truth and grace to all. But the society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ are not to be considered as two realities, nor are the visible assembly and the spiritual community, nor the earthly church and the church enriched with heavenly things. Rather, they form one complex reality which coalesces from a divine and a human element. For this reason, by no weak analogy, it is compared to the mystery of the incarnate word. As the assumed nature inseparably united to him serves the divine word as a living organ of salvation, so in a similar way does the visible social structure of the church serve the spirit of Christ, who vivifies it in the building up of the body. And that's from Lumen Gentium, paragraph 8. Let's pause here for a moment. So, to summarize, Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And the church, which he established and continually sustains, is his church. It's his body. And in a strong analogous sense, the church is both human and divine because there's a visible structure, but an internal cohesion as well. The passage continues in this way. This is the one church of Christ, which in the creed is professed as one holy Catholic and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd, and him and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. 
This church constituted and organized in the world as a society subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure, these elements, as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, are forces impelling toward Catholic unity. End quote. So if we understand that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, founded a church 2,000 years ago, then we can acclaim rightly that this church is divinely constituted. In other words, it's, it's an action of God. God made it. And as the church is always affirmed, the church is the mystical body of Christ. The church is also visible. As Lumen Gentium says, this church is the one church of Christ professed in the creed. So why do folks have a problem with this phrase subsists in? Well, generally, it's, it's due to a suspicion of the Second Vatican Council that sees the modernist boogeyman in every page of the documents of this council. The Latin phrase used is subsistit in. It's actually quite ancient. The meaning goes back at least to the terminology of Aristotle. And it means to exist as a substance. In other words, the church was founded by Christ and has been sustained by him as the one true substantive thing. This one church is the Catholic church. So why not just say is or est in Latin? Well, not to belabor the point, but they did. They, the first part of the paragraph containing subsist in begins, Haec est unica Christi Ecclesia. This is the one church of Christ. The council fathers are not disputing the understanding of the Catholic church as the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ can be encountered as a concrete subject only in the Catholic church. Now, these elements of sanctification and of truth outside the visible structure of the church are the reality that God is present and operative in the sacraments, which again flow from the church, such as baptism and matrimony. And in Protestant communities, those sacraments, baptism and marriage, are present and operative in all of the seven sacraments as well in the Orthodox churches. Nonetheless, the church subsists only in the Catholic church. So these elements of sanctification are not substantial and concrete instantiations of the church of Jesus Christ apart from the Catholic church. Rather, they are an admittance that moves as he wills and is drawing all people to himself in the Catholic church. We can't put God in a box. And this is true ecumenism, by the way, if you've heard that word ecumenism, it's being willing instruments in helping the Holy Spirit guide all persons to the truth and fullness of the Catholic Church, which is visible and concrete. To take another approach, we could say that when God affects a sacrament or moves in grace and power outside the visible bounds of the Catholic Church, it's nonetheless a fact that, as St. John Paul II wrote in Ut Unum Sint, paragraph 8, the one Church of Christ has an operative presence in them. So if someone is saved by sacramental grace, it's still only by the grace flowing from the one true Catholic Church of Jesus Christ, which is the Catholic Church, our sacrament of salvation on earth. And so how can we identify the Catholic Church? Well, the Catholic Church has always been visible, though admit 
admittedly clandestine in certain circumstances, like in the, the catacombs. And we can think here of the of even a present-day situation like in China today, or the church and communist nations in the 20th century. Or we can look at England under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, or under Roman persecutions or Muslim occupations. Nonetheless, the church was founded by Christ and continues to be sustained by him and guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit. The four marks of the church are present in fullness in the Catholic Church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The church is one because Christ is one. In the inner life of the Trinity, there's no disunity. Likewise, the church can't have any disunity, as it is the mystical body of Christ. The church is holy because Christ is holy, though it's composed of sinners like you and me. The church is Catholic because it's universal. This is the Greek katholu, which means according to the whole. God desires the salvation of all, and our blessed Lord commissioned the apostles to preach the gospels to the ends of the earth. This apostolicity finds fruition not only being built upon the successors of the apostles, but it also is firmly set on apostolic teaching. And as a result, the church has a true unity of governance, preaching, teaching, and means of sanctification. And so that's what we mean when we say the church is one. The Catholic Church has a visible hierarchical structure. The successors of the apostles are the bishops of the Catholic Church, and this is historically provable. However, apostolic does not only mean the successors of the apostles exist. If that were the case, then the Orthodox churches would rightly be considered apostolic. However, apostolicity also requires the recognition that Jesus designated Peter as the prince of the apostles. The papacy is the succession of this Petrine office, this, this office of Peter. The teaching authority of Christ passed on to the apostles, the magisterium, which is the successor of Peter in unity with all the successors of the apostles. In their words, in other words, rather, it's the Pope in union with all the bishops of the world. The Church of Jesus Christ will thus be one holy Catholic and apostolic. It will have a visible hierarchy of Pope, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, and lay people. Just as a body, the Church will have a metabolism, an internal means of sustenance as well. This is clearly the Holy Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ hidden under the veil of a sacrament. There will be actual church buildings. There will be assemblies of the faithful. The visible Catholic Church will be manifest and clear to all who seek her out because Jesus is not trying to trick us. Which brings us to the question, what is radical traditionalism? Finally, with a working understanding of what is meant by the Church of Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church, we can turn our attention to this idea of radical traditionalism. And granted, this term means as many different things as conservative and liberal do in American politics. My usage of the term is merely pragmatic more than descriptive. The Catholic ought to be traditional in the fullest sense of the term. A Catholic also ought to be radical in the sense that radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. We are rooted in Jesus Christ, and apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center... I don't know if I can roll my eyes big enough when I even mention them, but the Southern Poverty Law Center associates radical traditionalism with white supremacy, anti-immigrant attitudes, and anti-Semitism. 
And there might be some correlation in reality between radical traditional communities and these ideologies, but there's no causation. So I want to make that clear. In general, Catholic circles, in general Catholic circles, the main characteristic of radical traditionalism is not only a preference for the Latin Mass, according to the Masale Romanum of 1962, or before for that matter, but a tacit, if not explicit, rejection of the Roman Missal of 1970, called the Novus Ordo. Further, radical traditionalists reject the Second Vatican Council usually in its entirety. They see it as heretical nonsense, unfaithful, and a divergence from the true faith, a real rupture. The term radical traditionalism is often wrongly associated with or thrown around against those who attend the Holy Mass with the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, or FSSP, or the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priests, ICKSP, and other communities that are in full and complete union with Rome, and that needs to stop. These communities are obedient to the Holy Father and their local ordinary. They don't reject Vatican II or the Novus Ordo. They have a deep love and charism and reverence for the Vedus Ordo, the old order of the Mass and the sacraments. They have permission to celebrate the sacred liturgy according to that charism. And simply having a preference for the Latin Mass doesn't make somebody a radical traditionalism, radical traditionalist. Radical traditionalism is a rejection of Catholicism. Underneath the veneer of a heroic savior complex of safeguarding tradition against the modernists. Now, I want to be clear. Modernism is a serious problem in the church and the world today. Pope St. Pius X, a hundred years ago, or, or more than a hundred years ago, referred to modernism as the synthesis of all heresies. Ultimately, it's a denial of the supernatural and of mediation of Christ. This liberalizing tendency should be fought tooth and nail without a doubt. But what we cannot do is reject the Second Vatican Council. We can't deny the legitimacy or the validity of the Novus Ordo, and we cannot choose to be disobedient to the competent authority. And so the first question is, what is said of a Kantism? One of the loudest voices within radical traditionalism, at least on places like Twitter, is set of vacantism. Sede means seat in Latin and vacante means empty. So set of vacantists believe that due to formal heresy, the sitting pope lost the papacy. Now, usually these groups will maintain that Pope Pius XII was the last valid pope. Others will make arguments for Pope John XXIII, and I've seen one argument for Pope Paul VI, although this one makes the least sense. Um, Mario Dirksen of Novus Ordo Watch in his talk, Eclipse of the Church, the case for Sedevacantism, on October 8th, 2021, lays out his arguments. And I, I don't intend to litigate them here. I'm not trying to refute uh, Mr. Dirksen or Novus Ordo Watch, but I want to share part of um, the conclusion of his talk because I think it lays out what Sedevacantists in general uh, hold today. So that's helpful for us in terms of describing. He says this, if Francis and his five predecessors of unhappy memory, again, his words, were true popes, then the forces of darkness would indeed have prevailed. Then the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion, as Pope Pius IX called them, would have triumphed. Then the proud gates of hell would have succeeded in overthrowing the chair of truth and turning it into a fount of blasphemy and heresy. Then what had been the citadel and bulwark of the Catholic faith would have become the bulldozer of Catholicism. End quote. So for the set of a contest, none of the popes since Pope Pius XII have been true popes. And for those who are curious, that would be since 1958. 
For the last 65 years, the members of the body of Christ have been misled en masse. According to this view, uh, further, with virtually all of the cardinals, bishops, and priests complicit in this great apostasy, how are we to restore the church to its former glory? And again, I don't intend to debate set of occultism here because, frankly, I think the position is so intuitively absurd that it would be a waste of time to do so. If Mario Dirksen is being honest about his own conclusions, he'd likely agree. But in the paragraph directly before what I've already quoted, he says this, quote, Yes, we are happy to call it set of occultism, but really this isn't an ism other than Catholicism during these perplexing times. It is a theological position that creates itself, as it were, after we've ruled out the things we know to be impossible in light of the timeless truths of the Catholic faith. Set of occultism is what is left when we have rejected what is clearly false. End quote. So in other words, in the face of the entire mystical body of Christ on earth, including five legitimately elected and manifestly received popes, the set of occultist chooses to trust his or her feelings rather than trusting that the Holy Spirit guides and guards the church. At the risk of sounding snarky and sassy, I can't think of anything more modernist than that. However, I'll be honest, I'm sympathetic in some ways to the set of a contest view. We do live in troubling times. The popes of recent memory, even the amazing St. John Paul II and the incredible Pope Benedict XVI, have made some strange choices in prudential decisions. Further, many bishops and priests have said and done horrifically scandalous things without any sense of justice or discipline meted out by the church. But this is not an excuse to abandon reason and play the hero who is preserving the church precisely by leaving it. Because make no mistake, set of a contism is formal schism from the church of Jesus Christ. Though there are many set of a, independent set of a contest churches, the most prominent are the Roman Catholic Institute, that's RCI, Most Holy Family Monastery, MHFM, Society of St. Pius V, SSPV, uh, St. Gertrude the Great Church in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, or CMRI. And if you want a more substantive refutation of set of Acantism, I'd recommend this fantastic resource from Noah Perez at Catholicism Coffee entitled Three New Arguments Against Set of Acantism, and that'll be in the show notes. So the next question I want to ask is, what is the Society of St. Pius X, or the SSPX? I want to outline some of the dangers of radical traditionalism, but this article would get far too broad if I began refuting various points or getting into the nitty-gritty. Those resources exist. My goal, again, is only to show some of the spiritual dangers posed by Senevacontist and non-Senevacontist radical traditionalists. The largest group of radical traditionalist Catholicism is the Society of St. Pius X, or SSPX. Officially, the SSPX is not set of a contest. They acknowledge the legitimacy of the Roman pontiff and his predecessors. However, they reject the Second Vatican Council because they believe it contains theological errors and heresy. They reject large parts of the 1983 Code of Canon Law. Over half of the priests and most of the original and current leadership of St. SSPX reject the new Mass as containing elements dangerous for the faith. 
Since the days of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the order, they have conducted illicit ordinations of bishops and priests and consecrations. The society has even discouraged its followers from attending the Latin Mass offered by priests who are in full and manifest union with Rome, like FSSP and ICKSB, because of the belief that these ordinations are deficient because they were conducted by a revised rite. The website of St. Pius X claims that, quote, no canonical censors against the SSPX have ever existed. They also claim that the, quote, persecution of the SSPX is political in nature and that any notions of excommunication and schism are, quote, false accusations. To the contrary, Pope St. John Paul II, through the prefect of the Vatican's Congregation for Bishops, publicly decreed on July 1st, 1988, that Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and the four new bishops he consecrated illicitly had incurred the penalty of excommunication. The legitimacy of these excommunications was further clarified and reiterated by the Vatican in 1996 and 1998. More recently, Pope Benedict XVI and Pope Francis have made great strides in attempting to normalize the canonical status of the SSPX. Admittedly, the level of ambiguity of their current canonical status among informed and very bright Catholics is puzzling to me. What's clear to me, though, is the spirit of disobedience that runs rampant through the SSPX. For example, the SSPX do not believe that they are in schism or ever were, nor do they believe that Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre was excommunicated. And he was, and that excommunication has not been lifted. And we should pray for his soul. Their reasoning can be found on their own website archives. Quote, no penalty is ever incurred without committing a subjective mortal sin. Now, Archbishop Lefebvre made it amply clear that he was bound in conscience to do what he could do to continue the Catholic priesthood and that he was obeying God and going ahead with the consecrations, end quote. Hence, even if he had been wrong, there would be no subjective sin. Sorry, that was actually the end of the quote. Archbishop Lefebvre believed erroneously that if he did not gravely disobey the Pope, then the Catholic priesthood would not continue. And they say that this was not a mortal sin. Actually, they they say that it was no sin at all. There are recent books that continue this line of thinking, such as SSPX apologist Kennedy Hall's New Defense of the Society. And this thinking is Frankly, and this is not a, a reflection on Mr. Hall, but the line, the, the thought process is ridiculous and insidious. For a more sufficient refutation of this line of reasoning, I'd recommend um, a 2008 article on the excommunications from Kathy Caridi, JCL of Canon Law Made Easy. And again, that'll be in the show notes. The disobedience of SSPX is insidious because they believe they are the saviors of Catholicism and that they alone are safeguarding tradition from the modernist church. However, unlike the set of Acontists, they still acknowledge the rightfully elected Pope and his authority. They simply choose to be disobedient or to be obedient when it's convenient. In some regards, this position is even less tenable and less sympathetic than full-blown set of Acontism. The SSPX has significantly more faculties under some of the allowances granted by Pope Francis, which makes the position even thornier. 
Pope Francis gave priests of the SSPX faculties to validly and illicitly absolve certain sins that were normally uh, reserved to the Vatican or at least to a bishop. And this is a faculty that's normally granted to a local ordinary. They were also granted faculties to witness holy matrimony validly and illicitly. Again, that usually is left up to the bishop and the pastor. So this is a really important canonical point to make sure that those marriages are valid. Those within the society argue that these little allowances, not little, these, these allowances shows that they're not in schism and they are in fact in full union with Rome. And I think it says more about Holy Mother Church's care for souls who are currently under the care of the society than it does about the priests and leadership of SSPX. These are not canonical changes. They are indults, which is an extension of legal authority and an action that the church does not sanction. The reality is that the SSPX is not in full communion with the Catholic Church. They have no canonical status in the church, and they are in schism, just as the Orthodox churches are in schism. There's an excellent compilation of references by prominent clergymen about the reality of schism of the SSPX by no less than Cardinals Burke and Mueller, again, in the show notes. A schismatic spirit is deadly. The Church of Jesus Christ is the Catholic Church, which is one holy Catholic and apostolic Set of a contism and positions such as that of the SSPX do harm to each of the four marks of the church. The clear and manifest schism of set of a contism is a wound to all four marks of the church, but so is the ambiguous and insidious schismatic spirit of the SSPX. The church of Jesus Christ is one with Christ as head and we as members of his mystical body. This is an invisible reality, but it's also clearly visible and hierarchical. As a Catholic, to reject the vicar of Christ as the head of the church on earth is to reject Christ himself. Ubi Petrus, ubi Ecclesia, where Peter is, there's the church. It is to cut off from oneself, cut oneself off from the church. And of course, we pray for reconciliation and unity. As long as someone has breath in their lungs, it's not too late to repent and return to get back in the bark of Peter. However, we need to understand that schism is a grave evil on the same canonical level as formal heresy and apostasy. To leave the bark of Peter in times of turbulent water is a misguided plan and a sure assurance that you will drown. Yes, times are difficult. Yes, the church is in crisis, but Jesus Christ is not in crisis. He's asleep as the waves and wind rock and batter the boat. He's with us. And all we need to do is call upon him. He'll calm the raging sea. And instead, if we, tr- if we trust in our own power, we'll drown. If we make ourselves the authority, we'll be doing the will of the enemy rather than the holy will of the Father in heaven. If we're to love Christ and his one true church, then we must avoid radical traditionalism and every sense of a schismatic spirit with a holy fervor. No one knows better than Holy Mother Church. Times are tough, but the Church of Jesus Christ is the one place to be. The schismatic spirit is deadly to the soul. As St. Augustine said, bad times, hard times, this is what people keep saying. But let us live well and the times shall be good. We are the times. Such as we are, such are the times. Thanks for listening to Good Distinctions. Hope you've appreciated this conversation. Uh, If you liked it, if you found something useful in it, please share it, like it, uh, 
on if you're on listening on YouTube, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please uh, subscribe there, leave a rating and a review that helps us uh, be seen by more people. And above all, if you would, please go to gooddistinctions.com and sign up there at Substack and that way you'll get everything that Teresa and I send out. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.